The reading of God's Word this morning comes from 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 9. Hear the Word of the Lord. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you are a giving God, and you cause the rain to fall and the sun to shine on all of your creation. And from what you have given to us, we return to you with these tithes, these gifts, and these offerings, mindful that you have also given to us your ultimate treasure, your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we prepare to come now and sit beneath your word, we pray that you would show us him, that you would lift us with the eyes of faith, to see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts, um, that we might hear you speak. We bring our weary and our anxious and our bitter and our sorrowful, our confused, our comfortable, our happy, our joyful lives to you, confessing that we are all indeed a profound mixture of glory and brokenness. And we ask that you would meet with us, that you would meet us where each of us are, that you would meet with us this morning and reveal your goodness and your grace to us in the gift of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Children are now dismissed to Children's Church, so children ages three to six Make your way to the back of the sanctuary, and you'll be led to Children's Church. Well, it's just two more Sundays before Christmas. Time uh, seems to have flown by this year, for me anyway. Uh, Feels like it came up pretty fast. Um, But in these two Sundays that we have together before Christmas, we're going to spend a little bit of time thinking together about some implications of the Christmas story, and the gospel for us. And we're going to start this morning by talking about money and giving from this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
You see, on the one hand, this is a great subject for us to consider together because at this time of the year, we're spending a lot of time thinking about money <laughs> and we're spending a lot of time using money, right? We do a lot with money this time of year. Uh, we buy presents, we spend and we give and we get tax deductions and we get Christmas bonuses and we pay very, very close attention to our bank statements uh, at this time of year. So money is at the forefront of our thoughts. Uh, but then on the other hand, the Christmas story, I mean, the Christmas story itself is a story of giving and receiving, of God giving his ultimate treasure, his son, and of us receiving wholeness and life and peace through him. Uh, This timing is great for us, is all that I'm really trying to suggest here, to see how it is that the Christmas story, how it is that the gospel impacts something as practical as this, our money. And so pulling no punches this morning... I want to tell you right from the start uh, what my main point is this morning, and it's simply this, that grace never implodes, right? Grace always explodes and moves out. The saying um, goes that the words, you know, hey, watch this, right? They're they're often a redneck's final words, um, right? Um, About 15 years ago, those were almost my final words, uh, because we were living in Martin, Tennessee, and we were living really outside of the city limits. We were living out in the country, and there was a bunch of land surrounding us. And um, we had a bunch of people over one night, and we decided we're going to have a bonfire with all of these people. And so we had, I had stacked my wood up, teepee style, you know, all that kind of stuff. And when everybody got there, I got this brilliant idea and basically said, hey, watch this. <laughs> and... What what followed was me pouring a lot of gasoline onto that teepee structure and then winding a little trail away from that with gasoline. And it was my idea, well, I'm going to light this gasoline trail. It's going to find its way up to, a, to this wood pile and it's going to ignite and it's going to be awesome. Um, so I poured way too much gasoline on the, um, the teepee thing and uh, lit it made its way through the grass and hit that, hit that teepee structure. And there was an explosion in my backyard. And it was, it was a big, I'm not exaggerating. There was a mushroom cloud in my backyard (laughs) and that fire just shot everywhere. And, uh, it was frightening <laughs> for a moment. Uh, we, we got all that out, and by the end, we had scorched probably like 3,000 square feet uh, in my backyard. Um, and once, you know, once we had assessed all the damage, made sure every, we thanked God for everybody still being alive, all the guys in the group were like, that was awesome. <laughs> and it was. It was. It was awesome. Um, And it also gave me a great illustration uh, of the Christian life because grace never implodes. It always explodes and moves out, right? Here's what we're saying. When the wonder and the truth and the beauty of the grace of the gospel makes its way into your heart, it explodes outward. I mean, that's my thesis this morning coming to this passage because that's Paul's thesis in writing to the Corinthians, that grace always moves outward and explodes outward. See, to the degree that you really understand the good news of the gospel, 
of the Christmas story, we could say, to the degree that that grace gets into your heart, it will be reflected in the way we handle our money. It will be evidenced in our bank, in our bank statements. Jesus, many of you know this, Jesus talked about money almost more than he talked about anything else. Certainly more than he talked about sex. Certainly more than he talked about hell even. He talked about money. And it's because our relationship to our money, it is always a window into our hearts telling us what we really treasure in this life, what we really find beautiful in this life. It's a window in our, into our hearts telling us if we're slaves or if we're free. So the grace of the gospel never implodes, but always explodes. So let's take a look at these three points briefly together. Grace to give, lawless obligation, and liberating poverty. First, grace to give. What I want you to understand in this first point is very, very simple. is that giving is a gift from God. Giving is a result of God's grace. See how Paul told the Corinthians in verse 1 of that passage on your insert. He told in verse 1 about the grace that God had given to the Macedonian churches. And then in verse 2, we're told what that grace really was. And it was that God gave the Macedonian Christians a wealth of generosity. Then in verse 7, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians themselves to excel or abound in what he calls this grace of giving. Okay, giving is a result of God's grace. When grace, when the undeserved acceptance and welcome and love and forgiveness of God gets into your heart, it explodes outward. Paul was saying to the Corinthians, look what God's grace did to these Macedonians. Right. Verse four, he says this. They begged us. Let that word sink in just for a second. They begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. See, no coercion, no pleading, no guilt manipulation that you might have been fearing the moment you saw the title this morning to this sermon. None of that from Paul. They were the ones begging to give. Let us give our things and our money away. Now, if that sounds odd to you, and I suggest that it does. Um, even a little countercultural, right? Begging to give. Listen to verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. See, the translators, they have to translate th- this word extreme poverty because it's not just a word that means poor. It's a word in the Greek that means down to the very depths of poverty. They were the poorest of the poor. And in the midst of that extreme poverty, they were also facing severe trials of affliction. See, they were not, it's not that they were looking for a cause that they might unload some of their extra money. Right? They didn't have extra money. That's Paul's point. Right? As one scholar writes, the Macedonians had not prospered and given from their surplus. Right? They weren't giving off the top out of their Christmas bonus. Right? When you and I give 
from our surplus. What does that look like? It means we give, but it doesn't ever alter our lives. Right? We still go to the same restaurants. We still go on the same vacations. We still buy the same cars, the same TVs, and wear the same clothes. There's no adjustment of our lives there when we're giving out of our surplus. They were giving out of their poverty, and it was very, very risky. Because verse 3 says, they gave beyond their means. So, I'm sorry, Dave Ramsey fans out there. Um, They were not living within their means, is what Paul is saying. Right? But it wasn't because they were spending on themselves. They were radically generous, giving beyond their means. There's this great story in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 19, about a man. Some of you learned songs about him when you were in Sunday school a long time ago. Um, His name was Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a tax collector who had made his living by cheating and stealing from people. And he had actually made a very good living for himself and had become wealthy. But one day Zacchaeus met Jesus. One day Zacchaeus came into contact with Jesus and his grace. And guess what happened? Grace exploded outward, right? That's the thesis. He took half of his possessions and he gave it away to the poor. But even more than that, of the remaining half that he had, he committed to paying back all those people that he had cheated from, he cheated and stolen from. But hold on. <laughs> he didn't just pay them back what he stole. He paid them back four times the amount he had taken. I mean, see, it was more than just making an amends for wrongs. Grace was exploding outward. He had been transformed into a radically generous person. Now, that might seem crazy to you to think about how you could bring that into your life and make practical application to you. But I do want you to hear me say this. What you see in Zacchaeus, what you see in the Macedonians here, is what we call freedom. Right? You think about this. Why would someone like Zacchaeus steal from all these people to pad his own accounts in the first place? You know. Because money, if you have enough of it, it gives you options in life. It gives you choices in life, right? Money, if you, it gives you a feeling of control. Money, if you have enough of it, it makes you feel secure. It makes you feel powerful. It feels like you have a buffer between you and the brokenness of the world, right? It, that's why you steal. Because it makes you feel important. We could, go, we could list a number of different things here. Look, if you're following me here, after Zacchaeus met Jesus, his life is a testimony to the fact that he was free from needing money for power, for value, for importance, for security, for control, for comfort. In Jesus, his deepest needs were met by grace, and he no longer needed money for those things because he had all of those things in Jesus. Right? Same thing with the Macedonians. They were facing an unpredictable future. They were being persecuted. They had limited choices. They were in extreme poverty, right? Lack of comfort, lack of control. But knowing Jesus, they were free to give away what little they had. Grace always explodes outward in generosity. What about you? What about me this time of year, right? Are we free to give like that? 
do we, do we give like that? And what needs to happen in our lives or change in our lives for us to become like that? Okay, second, I want to see in this passage lawless obligation. Sounds like a very weird point, I know, but here's why I'm calling it that. In verse 7, Paul told the Corinthians that they were, that, that they were excelling in many things, right? And that's great. They were, he was praising them for that. But then he said, make sure that you also excel in this act of grace. And maybe it sounds weird to put um, these two terms together, right? Lawless obligation, right? But, but listen, if, when you come to this part of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, this may seem strange, but this is really a fundraising letter. Right. He's raising money for the church and he's encouraging these people to give. But as soon as that's established, Paul says in verse eight, I say this not as a command. So, right. There's an obligation, but Paul won't give them a rule or a law to follow. Obligation without law, lawless obligation. Now, here's what I think. I think Paul knew and understood the Corinthians. And I think Paul knows what we are like, too. Right, because it's almost like he overheard our collective thinking in the last point. Well, how much exactly? Put a dollar figure on that, right? What's the rule about giving? Right, D- doesn't, it seem, doesn't it seem and maybe even just feel like this would have been an awesome opportunity for Paul to say, the rule is 10% tithe, and that's what I expect out of all of you. But he didn't do that, right? And if you're not a Christian or you're new to the church, uh, the, the word tithe gets thrown around uh, some in the church. And by the word tithe, we're, we're talking about 10% of our, uh, 10% giving of our income. Now, that's a very clear rule. That's a very clear law to follow. Why doesn't Paul remind them of this rule? Because the Bible does talk about the tithe a lot, especially in the Old Testament. It was a requirement. It was the mark to say... Now you are beginning to be generous when you give 10%, right? That was the starting point. But then you get to the New Testament. If you read through your New Testament, you will see that it's actually very difficult to find a lot of places where the 10% tithe is referred to. And I think it's because when we cross over from the Old Testament to the New Testament, everything is exploding outward and upward. In the New Testament. To paraphrase a question from another preacher, are those of us who live on this side of the cross, knowing the fulfillment of God's promise to us to to redeem us and to redeem the world through his son, are we more or less indebted than the Old Testament believers? Obviously, we're more indebted, right? We're more responsible because we know this in this Christmas story that when God gave his son, And his son was born to die. He did not save the world by giving 10% of his blood and tithing his blood. He gave everything for you and me and for the church. So, So what is Paul doing here by not giving us a rule? What he's doing is he's saying, your giving is a matter of the heart. Verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. And other translators put it, to test the sincerity of your love. If you want to test the sincerity of your love, the way to do it is to pull up your bank statement and see where your treasure is. 
And I'm, I'm in the same boat with you. I am not preaching down to you right now. It, we all want sermons to have good concrete application until it comes to this, right? But here's the deal. This is very, very simple math. We don't need trigonometry calculators. We don't need algebra equations to figure this out. Our relationship with our money reveals the condition of our hearts. Either we are a slave to it and we have to hold on to it because it's our identity, because it's our hope, because it's our security, because it's everything. Or we are free and radically generous with it because God has given us our identity and our security and our hope. And it's all reflected in our bank statements. A well-used story of mine um, that some of you are probably getting tired of uh, revolves around some of my plumbing problems that I've had and uh, we experienced when we were living in Mississippi. And when we were in this little house in Mississippi, our sink started backing up and then the washing machine started backing up and then the bathtub down the hallway started backing up. Um, And so... All the Drano we were throwing in wasn't getting the job done, so we called the plumber. And the plumber came over, and the next thing I know, he has just destroyed my backyard. He's brought in backhoes, and he's digging trenches, and he's ripped up a section of my concrete patio that I loved in the backyard. And he's digging underneath my house to get to the PVC pipe that's underneath my house, because that's where the problem was, right? We were seeing the problem on the surface, right? We were seeing the symptoms of the problem, but he had to get underneath. And if we were ever going to have a sink and a washing machine and a bathtub that didn't back up with water, someone had to crack that hard concrete slab and get underneath my house and fix the problem where it really was. Look at your bank statement. Spend time thinking about what you do with your money this Christmas season. It's a great place to start, but it isn't the ultimate issue is what I'm saying. I mean, that's why Paul never mentions dollar amounts here or percentages, how much the Macedonians gave or how much he expects the Corinthians to give. Right. Ultimately, our bank statements, they are revealing something that is going down, that's going on on inside of us, in our hearts. Right. And if you and I are going to ever find freedom, someone has to come. Someone has to come and crack that hard concrete slab. That is covering our hearts. Only when it's cracked will we find the freedom of lawless obligation. Only then will the grace of the gospel make it all the way to our hearts. And begin to transform us from the inside out into freely and radically generous people. Okay, last thing here. Liberating poverty. Now bear, bear with me for just a second. I, I really enjoy listening to good comedians. I have them on my, my phone. We listen to them in the car. I love listening to good comedians because good comedians, they are masters of timing, right? It's something of an art form for them, right? They set you up and they get you thinking in one direction and then just at the right time, they turn the whole thing on you and that's what makes it funny. It shocks you and it's hilarious, right? They get you leaning in so much so that all they got to do is just... Mention that punchline and you're falling over in laughter. In some ways, I think that's how the Christmas story and the gospel works for us. Because look, so far we've talked about God's grace to give. That generosity is a gift from God, right? And then we saw this lawless obligation, right? No appeal to rules, laws, or restrictions, or, or requirements, or percentages. And if you think about it, those first two points should be unbelievably freeing for you and me. I mean, just think about it. Lawless, a, a gift 
of giving. Lawless obligation, right? But naturally, you and I, we've already started to lean to our default motives, right? Our default motives for how we change in this life, right? And so we start to to work with guilt and shame and fear. Motives like this never result in, in us giving out of an abundance of joy like the Macedonians did in verse 2. So see, we reason from guilt and should in our lives, right? You should be better. You need, you, you know, you need to work on being not so self-centered and selfish and materialistic. Or we use shame on ourselves. Like, what's wrong with you? You are so greedy. You are so gluttonous, so stingy. Or we use fear, right? What will others think of me? Right? What if they found out what my real motives were about my money? What if that was exposed? See, we naturally find ourselves leaning to those default motives, right, to change us. And I do it too, right? I find myself leaning in and I hear that same familiar self-talk, right? What's wrong with you? You should be ashamed. You better fix this or else. But that is not where Paul takes us. That is not where the Bible takes us. That is not where the gospel takes us, right? He doesn't say, look in the mirror, He says in this passage, look at Jesus. He says, look at Jesus. See, you're leaning one way. And Paul comes in and he knocks you over with grace that is unexpected and undeserved. Jesus, though he was rich, he became poor. And he did it for you. He gave up everything for you. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying... That's how loved you are. The king of kings. He could have anything and everything. And he wanted you. And and that's the key. That's how this begins to get to your heart. It's how it gets, gets through. And this is what will crack the hard slab that's covering your heart and mine. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's the Christmas story. Jesus had everything, but he left heaven, and he came down, and he became poor for you and me. You know, we tend to relegate Jesus' poverty a lot of times to the the realm of metaphor. But the Bible is constantly talking about Jesus' actual poverty. You realize this? He was literally poor. When his parents, Mary and Joseph, made their way to Bethlehem, right? They couldn't find a room anywhere. And all of us know that if you have enough money, there's always a room somewhere, right? He was poor and he was born in a dirty stable, right? When it was time to dedicate Jesus at the temple, his parents came and they brought with them what what was the smallest allowable sacrifice for the poorest of the poor, Two pigeons. That's all they had. That's all they could afford. Jesus used the language of homelessness to describe himself. Foxes have holes and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Now, trust me here because I I know your default motives and I know mine. This isn't like a, a guilt trip from another angle. right? Paul wants to knock us over with grace. That through Jesus' poverty... We have become rich, Paul says. How do we become rich, right? What do, what do we really want 
in life that we're so often hoping that our money can give us, right? We want to be loved. We want to be secure. We want to be accepted. We want to know that we matter and that we're valuable. We want to know that we have an identity. We want to be known and forgiven. Can I tell you something? If you are a Christian, you are going to spend all of eternity plumbing the depths and the height and the width and the length of God's love for you. We can only begin to scratch the surface here, right? Of how loved we are, of how wanted we are, of how accepted we are, of how secure we are in Jesus. You start to get that into your heart and I start to get that into my heart. And it will change us from the inside out. And grace will explode outward and it will change your self-talk even, right? I'm a broken sinner, but I'm so valuable that the king of kings would give up everything just to love me, right? He knows the depths of my real poverty that has nothing to do with money. And he has brought me all the way in, out of the cold, and he has embraced me in his loving arms. And I'm secure forever. Right? I tend to be afraid and fearful in my life. And the gospel story says that Jesus, he came and he faced the ultimate terror and he faced the ultimate fear so that you would never have to face it. Look, the smile you have longed for your entire life, it is yours in Jesus. He is not angry with you. He is not disappointed in you. He is not ashamed of you. He calls you his son and his daughter. Please don't despise Jesus by saying, but you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am or where I've been. Don't despise him. He became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich and know his love for you. I want you and me to grow in generosity and I want us to become free with our money, to do good with our money and to be free of its control so that we can hold on to our, these things that God has given to us with an open hand. And we can be thankful for God's gift, but we can also freely give to others. So how do we get there? Because we know that our relationship with money is a window into our hearts. We have to look at our money, right? We have to look at our bank statements. We'll have to think about what we're spending our money on. We'll have to think about, we'll have to think about how we think about our money. How about that? Right? We will probably have to have some serious conversations with our spouses. All of that is needed, but I want to leave you with this. Robert Murray McShane is a gifted Scottish preacher in the 1800s, and he famously said this, For every look at self, take ten looks at Jesus. Right? This is the Christmas application I want to give you. Look at your money. Look at your bank statements. Think about it and talk about it, but for every one look... That's your money. Take 10 looks at Jesus. And not just abstractly, because you don't think about your money abstractly. Don't think about Jesus abstractly. I mean, you know exactly how much it will cost to get that new TV, the car, the clothes, whatever. Pay for tennis lessons. I don't know what you do. So don't make your looks at Jesus abstract either. Dwell on what it means that he was born in a stable for you. That the king of kings was without a home for you. That he was born with a death sentence hanging over his head for you. He died on that cross for your very specific sins, even your sins of greed 
and materialism and all of that. He died for it all. Think about how much he loves you to have sent Jesus for you. Ponder what it means to be covered by his righteousness. What it means to be called his son or his daughter. Do that and we won't need to talk about generosity very much anymore. Because, right, when grace gets in like that and it makes its way all the way to your heart, it does not implode. It always explodes out. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time of year. We thank you that it is a time of celebration for us, a time to celebrate your intervention, the way you yourself in Jesus Christ entered into space and time, took on flesh, came into this world, was born poor, lived a life of poverty, gave up everything in order that we might become rich in Him. Father, I pray that this Christmas season and far beyond, You would allow us by Your grace and Your Spirit to dwell richly on the gospel, to dwell richly upon Jesus in order that we would be changed, in order that we would find the truth of liberating poverty, in order that we would find that no law is needed to make us generous because grace always explodes outward. Father, we pray that you would do this, that you would do it for our good and that you would do it in order that your kingdom would be revealed here and throughout the world. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.